we're so pleased that you can join us um, for this uh, seminar on the seminal new book that's just been released by IFPRI, Agricultural Development, New Perspectives in a Changing World. We're very excited to have the two co-editors of this book with us and some uh, wonderful discussions as well. My name is Charlotte Hedebrand. I am the new Director of Communications and Public Affairs at uh, IFPRI. We're very keen to hear from you. Um, so please uh, make sure that you submit your questions um, so we can get to those after the speakers are finished uh, with their remarks. You can submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag uh, AskIfpre on Twitter. So without further delay, let me turn uh, the, the mic over to uh, the Director General of IFPRI, uh, uh, Dr. Johan Swinnen. Over to you, Johan. Thanks very much, Charlotte. Um, it's, uh, it's truly great honor to give, be able to give this introduction here, make a few introductory remarks. I mean, this is a great, uh, great task to do this. I mean, the publication that we are introducing today, the book that this launches, I think it's an important achievement. It's a stellar set of editors. I mean, uh, Keiotsuka, who uh, has probably edited or written more books than anybody else in our, uh, in our field and is a, a giant of the profession together with Schengen Fan. And as we all know, Schengen has been director general of IFPRI for more than 10 years. But at the same time, I mean, beyond that, he has been inspiration and has shown great leadership in this field. And together, I think they have done a great job in, in editing this really important new book. It's also great as a IFPRI to publish this because it's, it's squarely in our field. <clears throat> and we really hope that we can make a, a contribution uh, on, in this way. It's a very timely book. I actually went back in my library to check when the last edition was from, from the famous International Agricultural Development book. The famous book by, by Carl Eichen and, uh, and John Staats. I actually got a copy here. And the last version was published in 1998. And so that's a long time ago. That's 20, almost 25 years ago. And of course, a lot has changed since then. So we've had major advances in, in theory, in empirical methodologies, there's new data sets uh, available. We've had uh, developments in other fields of uh, <clears throat> in other scientific disciplines, which have a lot of which have relevance for us, which are important, which we can integrate in our insights. And there's a whole bunch of new challenges. Uh, there's uh, the global markets have expanded rapidly over the past 20 years. Urbanization has uh, strengthened uh, global um, resource degradation, global warming, obesity that is rising. And now, of course, the threat of pandemics. These are all. Um, new development. I mean, some of them are old, but have gotten a new urgency. And so there is, uh, it's really great to have this new volume, which is addressing a number of these things in, in much more current uh, approaches than was uh, in the volumes that were available before. For example, I just quickly checked the, 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 the Eichhorn Styles book had no chapter on nutrition, which would be hard to not to have uh, today, I think. And, and I see that and Will Mar Masters is one of the discussions. I'm sure Will may reflect on that. Uh, so with that, I'm not gonna take uh, more time. I'm gonna give the floor to the people who edited and, and the book, wrote the book. And uh, I also look forward to the, to the discussions uh, today. I just want to mention that Uma Lele was normally going to be on the program today. Unfortunately, Uma could not make it, but uh, with Will Masters and Will Martin, the two Wills will do a great job, I think. Over to Kay and Schengen, I think. Thank you. Thanks so much, Yo. Um, our first uh, presenter then is uh, Keijiro Otsuka. He's the professor of development economics at Kobe University and also the chief uh, senior researcher at the Institute of Developing Economies. Um, as, uh, as Yo mentioned, uh, Kay is one of the two uh, co-editors of this book and he's going to walk us through the inception and the birth of this book, as well as uh, highlight some of the key uh, findings uh, of this very uh, long and, and seminal uh, textbook on agricultural development. Uh, the floor is yours, Kay. Kay, I think you may need to unmute yourself.
bottom left. Uh, There we go. Okay. I think I'm, I'm ready to speak. Uh, it's a great, great pleasure for me to be a first speaker of this very important uh, book launch event. Uh, for my presentation, the first page is most important. First of all, uh, lots of people forgot, but I was visiting research fellow at IFRI for five years from 1993 to 1998. So in my mind, I'm still, I feel like I'm a still a me member of a IFPRI uh, family. Secondly, can you see uh, the book cover? Uh, you can see on the right. Uh, you may be able to see women. The reason is that this, this book is interested in gender issue. Can you see uh, vegetables? Yes, we are interested in foods, nutrition, and health. And can you see two women uh, transacting something? <laughs> yes, we are interested in marketing uh, value chain and other uh, transactions. So this, this book cover symbolizes a lot of new things which are included in our book. Okay, let, let, let's go on to, uh, to the second page. Okay, this was not, uh, not, uh, not written in the book but I'd like to explain how this book was born. Uh, more than five years ago, maybe seven, eight years ago, Schengen told me to publish a book together. And actually I refused <laughs> because I could not find out important topics for a joint publication. But uh, a little bit later, maybe a few years later, I realized that we should work together for the publication of textbook on agricultural development. And I proposed that to Schengen and Schengen uh, 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 fortunately uh, agreed with my idea. And then we started our project in summer 2016, but uh, uh, Schengen did not agree. He, he said it was uh, uh, 2017. Uh, so I'm not so sure it was whether it was 2016 or 2017, but anyway, we started the project without any money. And then following the theory of induced innovation, we were induced to innovate. Uh, there are demand and supply factors uh, explaining uh, our uh, inducement mechanism. Demand factor one, th there's a sheer lack of textbook on agriculture development, which uh, Joe mentioned. Having been student of Professor Hayami, I was a student of Professor Hayami, and Schengen was a, a student of uh, Professor Rutan. So we were induced to do something innovative about, about this issue, the lack of the textbook. Demand factor number two, this is my uh, personal uh, judgment. I wanted to show really my appreci appreciation for Schengen's 10 years of excellent work as the director general of IFPRI by publishing jointly aided book. That's the second demand factor. There are supply factors. Obvious supply factor is that there are a lot of competent staff at IFPRI who are indispensable resources for useful uh, textbook in agriculture development in this uh, complex world. Supply factor number two, I think textbook can be a global public good. A lot of people can can learn a lot. And so CGIR Center, like IFPRI, should, should supply the global public good. That is the textbook we, are, we have just published. And we started from a re-examination of a Hayami Rutan thesis in part two. And like Hayami and Rutan, we examined regional patterns of changes and differences in land productivity, labor productivity, and so on. And we also discovered a lot of new and emerging issues. Therefore, this book has continuity from Hayami Rutan book to, uh, to, uh, to the new world. So we have a lot of uh, extensions. And unlike Hayami and Rutan, we cover whole region of the developing world in part two of the book. We look at the East Asia. East Asia means uh, 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 Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia and South Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, 
that the American, Caribbean, and Eastern Europe and Central Asia. That's one of the characteristics of, of this new book. And then uh, we found that the, uh, while in this innovation theory is, is consistent with uh, highland productivity development part of East Asia uh, and South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa, but there are a lot of more diversities, which is illustrated by uh, our, our figure 1.2. Yeah, as you can see, the blue dots uh, show the development path of East, East, uh, East Asia. But obviously, East Asia was followed by South Asia. And, uh, and then South Asia is followed by uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. There is sort of common pattern of development among three major regions. But if you look at uh, Mexico and the Caribbean, uh, 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 Central America and North America and so on, there are a lot of lot of new, new things. And we cannot explain the large increase in labor productivity, land productivity in Latin America because uh, by induced innovation theory, because in Latin America, the land is abundant. So something else is going on as well. Uh, next page, please. So uh, I was, and critical issues uh, identified in part two by uh, regional studies. Uh, we analyzed a lot of issues in part three, which is entitled context for agriculture development. Uh, we found from the regional studies that in addition to the conventional issues of productivity growth or improvement for food security, new and diverse issues of agriculture development uh, uh, arising such as rapid urbanization, nutrition, health, gender equity, and climate change, and so on. Uh, unique and variable characteristics of, of, of uh, sorry, not his, but uh, this uh, textbook is con comprehensive coverage of topics owing to the dedicated contributions of roughly 40, uh, to be accurate, uh, uh, 41 top experts in respective areas of agriculture development. Another characteristic is that this book is highly integrated with a common purpose to draw implications for achieving uh, multiple development goals. Major issues in part three include urbanization, nutrition, transformation of the rural economy, food value chain, international trade and political economy. Urbanization and income growth led to increase in non-farm income of farm households, rural to uh, urban migration and increased demand for high-value agriculture products, which stimulated the development of supermarkets, contract farming, uh, thereby affecting poverty and nutritional security. So this is a, a very brief summary of uh, what we did in, uh, in part three. And in part three, there are also other issues. Uh, uh, which include uh, gender, credit, insurance, uh, insurance and natural resource management. Uh, role of property rights uh, in natural uh, resource management in community is properly emphasized. And also uh, property rights have something to do with the allocation of budget within the household. Uh, these issues are highlighted. On the other hand, new innovative approaches uh, discussed for effective credit provision and insurance program for the poor people. So, and then we ended up with the, uh, with the strategy to achieve uh, multiple development goals in the, in the final part, that is part four. Uh, agriculture is both victim and cause of climate change. And chapter 19 is concerned with the uh, climate change and its impact on agricultural uh, production. Whereas chapter 20 uh, highlights the importance of uh, growing uh, water scarcity. That is followed by uh, agriculture research issues discussed in uh, chapter 21. Particular focus was placed on adaptation and mitigation of climate change by, by means of agriculture research. And then uh, we have a concluding chapter, that is chapter 22, uh, which identifies six strategic components to achieve multiple development goals. Uh, 
fast, empower consumers with knowledge of nutrition and health. That is obviously lacking. In order to improve the linkage uh, between nutrition and health, we really have to help consumers realize the, the linkage among them. And then number two, uh, we argue that we should transform farmers into entrepreneurs. Very often farmers passively accept orders from supermarkets and uh, agro-processors, but in order for them to be really rich, they must become entrepreneurs who can make right uh, uh, decision making. And then number three, we argue that we have to incentivize the private sector. Uh, economists often assume that private sector is efficient. That's not necessarily the case, right? There are a lot of inefficiencies uh, associated with the uh, management of uh, private sector. We should try to help the private sector uh, enterprises in particular in the processing area to strengthen their ability. And then number four, obviously we argue that we must prioritize uh, research and development. And then uh, for, uh, for, for the solution of climate uh, uh, problems, we must internalize uh, environment. And then finally, we argue that we have to make key stakeholders accountable so that the international agreement can be reached and the international agreement will be implemented. So this is the end of my uh, presentation. Oh, sorry, <laughs> and one more line, <laughs> uh, two more lines. We hope and we are also confident that this book will be a, a major textbook on agriculture development in uh, coming few, few decades. Uh, so I, I, I'm a Japanese and Japanese are known to be very punctual. And uh, I think I spent exactly 12 minutes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Otsuku-san. Uh, we appreciate that overview. It's now my pleasure to turn to uh, Professor Shengen Pham. He is a professor and dean of the Academy of Global Food Economics and, and Policy, uh, AGFEP for short, at the China Agricultural University. He is, of course, also uh, on the CGIR system board. And uh, uh, perhaps most importantly, the, the past uh, um, Director General of IFPRI. So a very warm welcome, virtual welcome back to, back to IFPRI to you, uh, Schengen. And we look forward to your highlighting some of the key findings of this uh, important work and how it fits into the, to the bigger dialogue uh, on, on food system transformation. Thank you, Charlotte. It's great to work with Kay. As Kay said that this book itself is an innovation. It's an induced innovation from demand and a supply side factors. So I'm not going to repeat what we have already done. Through this exercise for the last four or five years, I have to learn quite a bit from the more than 40 authors you know, in different areas, nutrition, environment, climate change, trade, market, gender, and so on. So I have drawn all the lessons, inputs from this book chapters and formed some of my sort of thinking on reforming or reshaping food system for human health or planet health. So it's indeed that the rapid transformation has happened in agriculture and the food sector. So in our introduction chapter, the global issues authored by Margaret Grant and myself, and five regional chapters. Obviously, urbanization, non-farm development, trade, and value chain all have been part of the transformation. But in the meantime, we are facing tremendous challenges, inequality, you know, gender, and nutrition, malnutrition, you know, overnutrition, undernutrition, climate change, natural resource degradation, lack of access to insurance, social protection, and beyond. So what do we need? We needed to reshape our food system. Or we embrace an every food system approach to make sure that we will use food system as instrument to achieve multiple development goals. And some of these instruments include R&D innovations and uh, well, obviously policy, but one critical issue is the political economy. So how are we going to move the needles forward? your co-authored that chapter. Now, we know that the hunger 
and the malnutrition is still a big challenge to us. So business as usual, we will not be able to achieve zero hunger or zero poverty by 2030. On the contrary, the number of poor, number of hungry people will actually increase. So by 2030, we will have more than 800 million hungry people compared to 690, maybe you know, another 100 million because of COVID-19. So we do not see a declining trend at all. Now, of course, the lack of micronutrients called hidden hunger, you know, 2 billion people suffer from that. Overweight obesity, another, another 2 billion. So if you walk in the street, whether it's in Beijing, Shanghai, New York, or Washington, you know, every two person you see is either overweight and obesity. So that is a big concern to us. On the other hand, our planet is sick. Planet health is being threatened. So look at the look at the planetary boundaries. So the genetic diversity, the uh, the use of nitrogen, phosphorus, and so on. You can see all these actions are related to food and agriculture, because our practice in food and agriculture sector that has threatened our planetary health. And on the left side, you look at the climate change. The food and agriculture sector accounts for probably 25 to 20 percent of total greenhouse gas emission. If everything else achieves its zero emission, just food and agriculture alone will push our planet temperature probably 1.5 or 2 degrees higher. So yes, IPRIS has done some scenario analysis, reducing food waste and loss, improving technologies, changing our diets, or even the combination of these instruments. Even with all this, we will still emit more carbon into the air from our agriculture and food system. So we must do things differently, drastically, urgently. So food system must be transformed to tackle global challenges. The 17 SDG goals, you will see at least half of the goals are directed, directed and linked to our agri-food systems. Probably all of them are directly or indirectly linked to the food system. So some of my deeply colleagues, Derek Hedy, Tim Thomas, and Chris Roy, and I have co-written a paper on how we're going to transform food system, or what is the economics of food system. So lots of rhetorics and lots of, um, let's say, statements about the transformation of food system. But there's a lack of serious economic analysis. So in that paper, we try to use a framework to look at the trade-offs and the synergies of different instruments in pushing our food system to different, different directions. For example, our food system must be productive, must be sustainable must produce nutritious, healthy foods, must be inclusive, and it must be resilient. And COVID-19 obviously is a wake-up call that our food system must pay attention to include inclusion as well as resilience. I think IPRI Global Food Policy Report 2020 very much focused on these two issues. Now, so how are we going to do this? Yes, CGIR is good in technology, but I think the future technologies must have multiple wins. Wins in yield, of course. Wins in nutrition. And wins, let's say, in resilience, in reducing environmental carbon, environmental, environmental footprints. So wins, nutrition, environment, and productivity. I mean, biofortification is a very good example. So I think now we have many, many technologies that can increase the yield, save water, and probably protect our natural resources. But in the meantime, if we can add a nutrition into the food crops, then we will be able to achieve multiple wins. Of course, other technologies, precision agriculture, artificial intelligence, big data, can also push towards all these directions. Now, we also must embrace non-agriculture technology. I think Wernon Rutan or Hayami have not visioned that invention that non-agricultural technology sometimes have even much bigger game-changing impact 
than agriculture technologies per se. For example, mobile phones, e-commerce, internet platform to link smallholders to millions, millions of producers, reducing transaction costs, and to ensure that the traceability part is really big game changer. We need to follow, we need to promote. Noble foods, you know, impossible, impossible burger, beyond meat, all these technologies beyond agriculture. It's more biotechnology, more food processing technology that can also help, help us to produce more healthy, nutritious, nutritious foods with much less carbon footprints. So we have seen some of these technologies. Now, let me come back to the hard core of our business policy, reforming subsidy support policies. So right now, the whole world is spending more than $700 billion on subsidizing water, fertilizers, pesticides, and many other inputs to produce grains. We think, and this evidence shows that these subsidies are not sustainable, do not produce healthy nutritious foods, they are not economically efficient. So can we repurpose these subsidies and use this money to invest in producing healthy nutritious foods, not only R&D, but also the whole value chain, uh, whole supply chain development, and try to educate consumers. Reforming physical policies, can we tax unsustainable, unhealthy foods, tax them? But with the revenue, we don't want it to submit all this revenue just to, to the government treasures. Can we use this money? Can we keep this money in food and agriculture sector? Again, to support the production of nutritious, healthy, and sustainable foods. And I use part of that money to enhance nutrition target social protection. The social protection is very much you need. During the COVID-19, we have seen that more people need protection. You know, I think the people who need protection double or triple. Can we also include nutrition as part of the condition? Then institutions. Yes, property rights. You know, I think the free, the free riders problem, lack of, lack of secured property rights are some of the major causes of, of the market failures. So strengthen the property rights and empowering the woman. A woman lacks access to land, to water, to productive, other productive assets, to technical services, you know, to income, to political voice. And I learned quite a bit from, from the gender chapter that even within households, how men and women can form a connective action to produce public goods at a household, for example, children's education, children's health, and then finally strengthening resources rights. We have seen some of IPRI studies led by Ruth and many other researchers and Frank Place in that chapter to strengthening land rights by registering, by well, land registration can double the livelihoods of rural households in many countries, particularly, let's say, in, uh, in Rwanda, uh, Malawi, many African countries. So I stop over here. And I, once again, I want to thank you, Kay. I want to thank the co-authors Will, Will Masters, Will Martin, okay, Will, Will, Will Squares, <laughs> and many, many other authors. Thank their great contribution. I mean, it's part of my learning process. And we're going to continue to use some of the inputs from the book to shape our future food system for our own health and for the planetary health. Thank you. Thank you, Shalom. Thank you very much, Ms. Chang'an. Um, before we move to our discussants, um, let me remind you to please uh, go ahead and submit your brief questions. You can do so on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or again, by using the hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter. And it's now uh, my pleasure to turn to, the, to our two discussants um, for this event. And uh, Yo mentioned that unfortunately, uh, Professor Umalele is not with us uh, today. Um, and we hope to have her uh, join us for a future IPRI seminar soon. Um, so we will start off with uh, Professor Will Masters. He's the director of the Imana Fellowship Program and, and professor at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. And we're grateful uh, that you can be with us today, Will. Uh, your um, role just as a discussant on this very uh, 
extensive book it is going to be through the lens of uh, health and nutrition. So many thanks. Yes, thanks. Uh, thanks, Charlotte, and thanks to everybody for joining. I just want to start by saying what, a, what an honor and a pleasure it is really to echo what Yo said at the, at the outset, that, um, you know, people on the call who've joined, you know, should be aware that, that, you know, Kay and Schengen, the authors of this book are really, you know, for someone like me among my professional heroes, uh, and it's really been an honor to, to share the process of creating this book. Um, from initial workshops and discussions uh, to the product that you see now. So I wanna share just two ideas really. Uh, one about the form of the book itself, kind of what is this for, as Charlotte mentioned from a perspective um, in nutrition and health, um, and then a little bit about the content. So about the book itself, first of all, it's extraordinary just to have a book. So as people are aware, the publishing landscape has transformed completely towards much shorter attention spans, much shorter form to Twitter, to visual images. And what you get here is really masterful text, writing that is thoughtful, attentive, careful, hugely valuable in a book length. You know, what does that mean? It means you get global long-term coverage written by real authorities. So when I was a student, Kay was a few years ahead of me um, I was reading his work fresh off of field work that he was doing in Africa, the history of Japan, tremendously important in Schengen in the, in the early 90s, um, similarly for China. What I learned about China was really written by Schengen in the, in, the, in the 90s. And then both of them around the world, the perspectives that they brought in editing this, tremendously valuable. So what is it? It's multidimensional, it's nuanced, it's complicated. There's no fundamentalism here. It's not technology fundamentalism, it's not market fundamentalism. Uh, it, it's really a consensus view. There's a room for more controversial work. I would just flag, for example, the IFPRI book talk coming up about Rob Parlberg's uh, Resetting the Table book, which is more about controversy. What you get with this book is really this extraordinary wisdom of the longer term with a sense of community. I think the voices of the authors really come through. So when you get to the chapter on gender from Cheryl uh, Doss and Agnes Kisumbing, you really hear them. It's very brief, it's to the point, it's beautifully written, uh, it's really a remarkable chapter. When you get to, to uh, Yo Swinnon's chapter on political economy, you hear his voice, I think, remarkably. Um, and with Tom Reardon's chapter, for example, on, um, on value chains, that staccato style, uh, it's really remarkable. So we feel that we have a community of people with tremendous wisdom. And the second thing I want to share is about the content. So on the content, clearly it's about its title. It's about agricultural development. And the target is students and teachers in the world of agricultural development, meaning primarily colleges of agriculture. Um, as Charlotte mentioned, I have the honor to lead a fellowship program called the Amana Fellowships Program, which is part of the Agriculture Nutrition Health Academy. We work with uh, agricultural colleges and health schools and policy schools all across Africa and Asia. And I think there's many, many young faculty uh, just starting out, needing materials for their courses. This is a great, great resource uh, for them, but it's really written for agriculture. So I hope that it attracts an audience from outside of agriculture uh, as well. well. We'll see whether people are able to access it. I'm very curious about the download statistics that I hope IFPRI will, will monitor. I'm very curious whether it's possible to get this to be a form that's readable on a, tele on a phone. Um, because the Kindle, as you might know, costs $3. Um, it, you know, if we could make it, it free, I would hope to, to just read this on a phone, it would be very valuable to make it accessible to our Agricultural Nutrition Health Academy uh, type, of, type of audience. Um, and I would say there's not much economics in it. The economics comes through clearly in the words, but it's not teaching economics. Uh, and that's good for me personally, because I have um, an economics of agricultural development book, the fourth edition coming out um, for students who really wanna learn sort of the, the analytical diagrams and so forth, uh, as well as a more nutrition-oriented uh, food book. So to close, I just wanna share a little bit about the content. So the key point here is systems and the interconnected complexity of the system. So on agriculture and nutrition in particular, the idea that agriculture is a huge solution for undernutrition because it can make more food and help farmers become richer, um, but it's not a solution for obesity and overconsumption because you can't uh, pull up, push on the string. You can't remove 
calories the same way that you can add them. Um, and secondly, this point about, uh, about interconnections, that instead of just value chains, we have a mesh of interconnected uh, um, at production, uh, distribution, and consumption relationships that are so beautifully described in this. And I think Will Martin uh, will share some really important insights about the international aspects of that, of that next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Will. And thank you also for teeing up our next uh, discussant, uh, who is also named Will. Um, Will Martin uh, is uh, jumping in uh, to replace uh, Uma on the program. Um, Will is, the, um, is a senior research fellow in IFPRI's uh, Market, Trade, and Institutions Division. He is also, of course, the co-author of this book's chapter on, uh, on international trade and agricultural development, along with Kim Anderson. So we're really pleased to give the floor to you, uh, Will, to, to speak about the key findings from your chapter. And again, feel free to put them into a bigger context. Uh, I think with the COVID crisis, there's a lot of discussion about uh, whether disruptions in value chains should lead countries to rethink uh, um, their strategy with regard to uh, potentially trying to arrive at self, uh, food self-sufficiency um, and how much to rely on, uh, on trade. Over to you, Will. Thanks very much, Charlotte. It's a great pleasure um, to be here to, 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 to um, provide discussion comments on this wonderful book. <coughs> In the discussion, we focused on the role of the book as a textbook, but I think it's much more than that. This is a reference source that should be on every everyone's bookshelf, virtual bookshelf, um, uh, who's interested in agricultural development and development um, more generally. It's an excellent reference source. As, as co-author of the Lucky Chapter 13 with Kim Anderson, um, I've enjoyed reading the other 21 chapters with all of the insights that they provide, particularly because they've been so carefully edited by Kay and Schengen to ensure consistency um, and, and to bring out um, the wonderful messages. So an excellent reference source for a wide range of professionals as well as access. Um, uh, it's important to have access to uh, students so that the book will have an influence over um, the next generation, the next 22 years until another book of this style um, uh, becomes, becomes available. I hope individual chapters will be available too for professors wanting to put them uh, on, on reference lists. A key feature of the book um, is the awareness of the history. Most of the chapters talk a lot about the evolution of thinking um, on, on these issues. They often go back a long way. Um, we hear in, in the introductory chapter, the, the evolution of thinking, W. Arthur Lewis's focus on um, agriculture as a source of surplus. John Miller, the second director general of uh, IFPRI, his re re rediscovery of the importance of agriculture as a, pos as a positive role in economic development and poverty reduction. And that chapter comes right up to the discussions uh, of today. Chapter 13 with, uh, with my uh, former colleague, Kim Anderson, um, we try to, to follow the, the general model. We talk a lot about the, the long history of agricultural trade, the vital importance in early days um, of things like uh, the, the trade when you could control the pirates in the Mediterranean, the vast trade across the Mediterranean to Rome, later to um, Byzantium, um, and, and uh, also the trade in genetic materials, the, the, uh, <clears throat> the Colombian exchange, for instance, those hugely important evolutions in the history, um, the importance, the, the discovery in economics of the importance of agricultural trade for efficiency, for redistribution, um, <clears throat> and for the reduction of volatility of food consumption um, and the reduction in the prevalence of famines. Um, the evolution of agricultural trade in the 19th century when transport made it possible, improvements made it possible to move large amounts uh, of agricultural products, for instance, across the Atlantic, um, uh, and the Corn Law reforms made it feasible, the policy reforms that made it feasible, the disaster of the 1930s, the, <clears throat> the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, and the, the tumble into self-sufficiency and the uh, poor consequences of that. 
the challenges of interest groups to securing reform. And here, chapter 13 ties in very closely with chapter 14, Joe Swinnon's excellent chapter on uh, interest groups and political economy um, of reform. Kim and I then turn to the progress that was made in the post-war era, particularly in, in reform at the national level, regional level, and particularly the big rounds of trade negotiations through um, the Uruguay round and, and, and the, the, the unfortunate demise of the Doha development agenda. We then look at the importance of ongoing reform. And here, Charlotte's point about COVID is hugely important. Trade's actually been very helpful um, in complementing domestic production um, uh, of trade. It's very, it would be undesirable if we went down the path of policy we've seen first in protective equipment and now in vaccines of self-sufficiency and export restrictions. Trade reform remains hugely important, probably more important in the context of climate change. And then I think there's a beautiful wrapping up chapter, chapter 22 by Kay and Schengen that brings it all together, that highlights many points from the individual chapters and also makes a fundamentally important point. We've moved from having just a couple of policy goals for agriculture and agricultural development. We've always been worried about improving efficiency, about reducing volatility and famine um, and food insecurity. Um, but now we have many, many goals that, that we encapsulated, for instance, in the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 goals. With so many goals, we need to think very hard. And how do we coordinate? How do we prioritize policy for development? I think there are some new and interesting questions raised right at the end. This book's going to make a huge contribution to improving understanding for the next generation. And I want to thank Kay and Shagan for their great work in bringing it to fruition. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Will. Um, uh, I, I think the, the breadth of the book has been uh, well laid out. Um, given the fact that this is really also a history book, I'm actually going to uh, kick off with a question to, to Kay and Schengen. The book makes the point of what an extraordinary age we're living in and, and how many new challenges the agri-food sector is, is facing. Do you think that this uh, sense of uh, many new challenges, many new requirements uh, is, is unprecedented. If you look back at the history of agricultural development, do you think that there were times when uh, people felt equally uh, perhaps a bit overwhelmed by everything that, uh, that the ag sector had to deliver? Or would you say this is really a unique moment in, in, in the global history? It's a big question, but uh, over to you, Kay, and, and Singen, if you'd like to uh, answer that. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, this is a very difficult time and kind of a turning point. In the 1970s, when I was in the graduate school, <laughs> I studied how to increase uh, food production, production of rice, production of wheat, production of maize. But if you look at the contents of the book, we cover so many issues, uh, many goals, as uh, uh, Martin pointed out, and many, many issues. So it's impossible for one person or two person or three people to write a textbook now. Who, who knows about climate change, gender, international trade, political economy, uh, insurance and technology and so on and so forth. It's impossible. So I thought we need collabor collaborative uh, project to, to prepare the uh, textbook, but it's not easy <laughs> to invite 40 competent staff uh, researchers uh, to, uh, to contribute. But then I realized that, oh, it's free. It's a huge collection of competent staff. So, you know, so that was one of the ideas uh, which came to my mind. And then uh, Schengen is, is a boss, was a boss of uh, such great place. So only this in this place, only in this occasion, we can do something unprecedented. And uh, I'm very pleased to hear a very positive assessment of the book from uh, Will Martin and uh, Will Mustard. Thank you very much. Yeah, Charlotte, I just wanted to add a couple of points. 
I think the challenges we are facing today are really unprecedented. Climate change, COVID-19 really made our agriculture and food system very vulnerable, very vulnerable. So I see an urgency. So I also see an opportunity. So if we just narrowly focus on production, agriculture production, like what we did in the 70s, like Kay said, I think actually we lose, we lose an opportunity. So it is time for agriculture economies to embrace the agri-food system approach, production, transportation, processing, consumption, nutrition, and health. But meantime, agriculture has massive externalities, environment, climate change. So if we embrace it, actually our limit is the sky. So I really wanted to, let's say, to plead to our colleagues that let's embrace it to tackle, to use agriculture and food to tackle some of the unprecedented challenges we are facing right now. And urgency is critical. And I think this book really provides enough inputs, enough thoughts for that. And if we all work together, if we convince, I think Bernard Rutan told me a good lesson. He said the best economists, best agriculture economists should be the one who can convince the non-agricultural economists to understand the value of agricultural economics. He was the first agricultural economist of CGIR based in, in Manila. See, he, his job was to convince others to believe the value of economics. Thank you. Um, the, the book is, of course, full of uh, very valuable data. We have a question here from uh, Kultum uh, Olabasi Kamarudin. Uh, who's wondering whether the availability or perhaps uh, lack of availability of data on agricultural development, specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, um, how did that play out uh, in, in creating this book? Was, uh, did you find that there was sufficient data or are we still facing major data gaps coming from, from Africa? Uh, I don't know who would like to take that question, maybe uh, Schengen, and uh, um, if, if any of you want to comment on that. Sure, I can go ahead. Yes, the data is a problem, is a challenge. But IPRI has been working with African Union, with African countries in setting up the country support programs. And this has got a RESAC, Regional Strategic Analysis Support Program to, to support African Union, to support countries in connecting data, in building the capacity in analyzing the data, and to convert the research and the data into policy making. Uh, I think that yes, data is a challenge, but we have made a tremendous progress. I think today we must think very differently now. The data, not necessarily just with the government, the data with the private sector, uh, with, with, with the cell phone. Uh, I think we must harvest all kinds of data, including our own household survey. As you know, the country support programs, every country support program has large household survey let's say Ethiopia, Nigeria, Ghana, Malawi, and so on. So we're getting better. And I really hope that the, the governments, African Union, even the World Bank, UN can recognize the importance of different types of data. So not just official data, but the big data, the data from the private sector, and the data from, let's say even from SEPNA. Thank you. Excellent, maybe just in, in the interest of time, let me move to another question. It's a very interesting one. Um, it, it's posed by Naima Daricic, uh, who's an engineer um, uh, at Studies and Financial Forecasts Department. Uh, she, or he, sorry, I think it's a she, is, is asking whether we could explain a bit more the link between um, taxing uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions of greenhouse gas intensive foods and uh, food uh, system security. And I might add to that a, a question about uh, taxing uh, perhaps less nutritious food as well. How do we balance that with, uh, with food system security? Um, and on the, on the second question, maybe we can kick off uh, with, uh, with Will Masters. Um, how do you square that uh, uh, proposal to tax uh, some foods uh, with the overall goal of promoting food security? Uh, can I say a few words? Uh, yeah, let me first, Will, did you wanna jump in on that, Will Masters? Um, sure, yeah, I think um, the work described in the book uh, really reflects well the consensus views that 
Yes, prices matter a lot. Access to trade and markets matter a lot, uh, but so does technology and so does regulation where food composition has changed greatly. We now eat foods that don't come from farms in the main, we do some, but mostly we eat food that comes from uh, factories, literal factories, uh, food industry. And so of course the composition of the food that we eat from industry is not what comes from the farm. And so um, directly addressing that through regulation as opposed to just trying to tax might uh, be one of the kinds of things that we talk about in the nutrition chapter um, and that is um, extremely important regarding overconsumption. So agriculture as a solution to undernutrition, but other things to the, regulate the food industry as a solution for overconsumption uh, is the main theme of our nutrition chapter. Excellent. Uh, Kay, over to you. Yes, uh, in order to reduce uh, climate change uh, or prevent uh, global warming, we need taxing. I agree. But in order to tax properly, we have to be able to measure the amount of emission, uh, amount of effort to reduce emission. We must be able to measure it. And that measurement is lacking. And that is a new global public good which we really emphasize in, 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 in the last uh, few chapters. Excellent. Um, we have a question here also for Will Martin. You alluded to the, uh, to the successful Uruguay round, to the unfortunate demise of the, the Doha round. How do you see um, the future of multilateral trade negotiations in this more challenging uh, world, which I think we all agree is, is, is actually unprecedented. How, what should be the priorities uh, moving forward? And, and maybe in addition to that, uh, what do you make of the attention that is now being given to subsidies, agricultural subsidies um, from emerging economies? That is quite different than the debate that we, we faced uh, in the Uruguay round. Oh, uh, great. Uh, thank you. Wonderful question, uh, Charlotte. Um, I, I think that it is a very challenging time for getting international coordination uh, on, on trade policies. Um, but I think it's always important to remember the old saying that it's always darkest just before the dawn. Um, you know, we saw the disaster of the 1930s, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, all of those cascading protection that caused world trade to shrink dramatically. But it was within two years of that, that the process that was to resolve many of those problems uh, the, the, and lead to the gap some years later um, and those rounds of negotiations actually began with reciprocal trade agreements um, in 1933. So um, I think there is progress. There are huge challenges. There are real difficulties dealing, especially with the more complex agenda associated with um, environmental change with sustainability. Um, remember, a quarter of global emissions come from agriculture and land use change. And that's something that um, uh, my colleagues in MTID and I are working on, David Laborde and Rob Boss, we're working on uh, at the moment. How can we repurpose, how to change the policies, both at the national level and internationally to deal both with the trade efficiency and volatility issues, um, but also uh, sustainability um, and resilience issues. And I think some use of taxes specifically focused to problems is likely to be necessary. Another thing that's likely to be very important is technical change. We're already seeing innovations that dramatically reduce emissions from the biggest source of emissions, enteric fermentation, um, from ruminants. There are innovations available now that could vastly reduce that. And then, of course, there are possibilities further on with um, alternate ways of producing um, meat substitutes. So uh, I think there are lots of challenges, but as Shengen mentioned, lots of opportunities uh, out there as well. Yeah, can I add one point over here, Charlotte? I think this taxing is not universal. universal. For example, in Africa, Many children still needed to eat more high quality animal source protein. This is essential for their growth. So what, I, what we really mean is, is that for Europe or US, Canada, or even Australia, you know, they eat lots of red meat and they contribute to climate change and can we tax them? But in the meantime, you know, we use tax revenue to support 
more sustainable, more resilient livestock production that can also help to reduce carbon emission. So not just either or, it's a combination of taxing and using that money to promote the production of healthy and nutritious food, including a certain, let's say, um, animal production in Africa or South Asia. Good, uh, good point. Um, let me get to a question that was posed by uh, Sentil from the uh, African Development Bank, um, who says that agricultural development, and I, I think we can add to that, addressing some of the sustainability challenges, uh, requires technology, innovation, and science. But of course, in many developing countries, uh, there are significant digital infrastructure challenges. How do we address these? Um, perhaps I, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with you, Shannon, to address that question. Uh, one of the questions I, I posed in the, in the book is why green revolution took place in Asia since 1966? Nothing happened in, not, not nothing, but uh, green revolution had not taken place to a significant scale in Africa. Also, why there are very few agro-industrial clusters which are engaged in processing of foods and sorting out foods, grading uh, foods for selling to supermarkets. Uh, my, uh, my view is there's a lack of investment in human capital, uh, particularly uh, management. If we think of uh, uh, nutritious new foods, farmers do not know where they get the seeds, how to grow them, the new, new, new crops. We have to invest in, uh, in the diffusion of the new knowledge. Similarly, I don't think uh, uh, agro uh, enterprises uh, uh, managing their businesses in a very efficient way. Even in Asia, the enterprises have a lot of problems because of the, of the information spillovers. That means externality. So there's a, a underinvestment in knowledge and also knowledge diffusion. So I strongly argue in chapter uh, 11, I think, uh, in the transformation of the rural economy, we really have to invest in human capital much more than before. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, Yo, I would like to turn to you with a question. Um, give us an overview of the key factors we need to be thinking about when it comes to political economy. Um, uh, what are some of the key points that you made in that important chapter of, of this book? Um, whoa. That's a, <laughs> that's a big question. The, um, well, I think the biggest areas there are, um, it's in a number of areas, but I see that that regulation where, I mean, the, the, the classical issues on trade, okay, because that's where a lot of the conflicts are, that they are still there. I mean, we see that the Doha round, <clears throat> which was supposed to give a big boost to developing countries as well, is kind of not much is happening there for the moment. And I think what we've seen over the past couple of years on trade, people are moving back rather than moving forward there. But at least a lot of the, the I mean, trade has increased. Actually, global trade intervention in agriculture has come down significantly over the past 20 years. And so I think that's uh, very good as well. And the emphasis on, on less distortive support. I think there's a lot of uh, issues regarding the regulatory issues. I mean, that goes... And there's a lot of different things, things where uh, uh, Will Masters talked about in terms of regulation of, of different uh, the food industry, but also things like genetic, uh, sorry, geographic indication, GIs is gonna be a big thing in trade. They are already. And so a variety of regular, think about CRISPR regulation. I think that's maybe the, uh, the most important thing right now, if I would have to pick one. I mean, we already have the European Union blocking GMO use which is spilling over in Africa and the other developing countries and so CRISPR is right now restricted I mean if that would that restriction would, would stay there and basically spill over across the world and things I mean I think that would really have a tremendous consequence because it may link into other technology regulations etc as well and so this is uh, I mean there's a lot of stories on it but the analysis of it is relatively limited I think and so there's a it's, it's a very important thing Great. Thank you. Um, well, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, I think we uh, have just uh, really scratched the surface of this very rich book. 
Um, but I hope we've encouraged everybody to pick up the book. Um, as Will Masters said, it's nice to have an actual book <laughs> to, to turn to. And, and so I hope we've whet everybody's uh, appetite um, to, to pick up this really incredible public good. Um, and, and I congratulate Kay and, and, and Shengen for pulling together uh, such a large collection of important chapters. Um, as was mentioned, we had some 40 authors involved and many of them, by the way, from IFPRI. Um, so uh, many thanks to all the presenters uh, for, uh, for a very good discussion. Uh, I'm sorry we didn't get to all the questions. Um, in closing, let me invite uh, the audience to join us um, for another upcoming book launch in IFPRI. Um, February 9th, uh, we will be launching the book um, on an evolving paradigm of agricultural mechanization development. How much can Africa learn from Asia? So also a discussion uh, that will be very relevant for this broader discussion. Uh, many thanks to all of you who have joined. A big thanks to Katarla and the whole CPA team that is working to uh, put together these uh, these seminars and I, I wish the rest of you a very nice uh, rest of the day or evening uh, wherever you may be. Thank you so much.